0: Welcome to the Change Your POV Podcast. You're listening to Headspace and Timing, a show dedicated to breaking down the stereotypes of veteran mental health. I'm your host, Dwayne France. Let's get ready to make sure that your Headspace and Timing is set correctly. Hey, everybody. Welcome to Headspace and Timing. This is your first time listening, and thanks for checking us out. As many of you who serve know, the M2 machine gun, the 50 Cal, is one of the greatest weapons in the military's arsenal. The weapon's headspace and timing isn't set right, however, it's just a huge chunk of metal. Veterans can be rendered inoperable if their headspace and timing's not set correctly either. That's my mission here, to raise awareness about veteran mental health and reduce the stigma against seeking support. Each week we'll talk about different aspects of veteran mental health and interview mental health professionals that are working with veterans, service members, and their families around the country. Hey folks, it's Dwayne France, host of Headspace and Timing, uh, got an interesting show for you here today. Uh, one of my Change Your POV Podcast Network co-hosts, uh, we'll say that five times fast, but uh, Jeff Adamek is here and uh, wanted to talk to Jeff today, uh, not as a mental health professional, but as a veteran who has experienced some uh, some things and has worked with mental health professionals. So. I think that Jeff is uh, is going to bring a unique aspect to the show, so uh, welcome, Jeff. Thanks for uh, thanks for taking the time.
1: Thanks, Duane. I uh, appreciate you having me on and uh, giving me the opportunity to uh, help get the word out about about some. This I mean, this is massively important. I think this is probably the cornerstone of what's most important about um, our dealing with veterans nowadays. And I, and I say that not to suck up to your listeners or you. I say it because I really believe it.
0: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I, I think this is a huge thing that uh, that's totally important. Is to, to just uh, uh, get the message out there, like you said. So, uh, before we get started, how about you uh, you tell the audience a little bit about yourself? I know they listen to your show uh, because uh, you know nobody has any time but to listen to what we're saying. But uh, in case <laughs> they haven't, tell them some about what's uh, what you've got going on.
1: My name is Jeff Adamick. I- I'm 39 years old. I live in North Carolina. I served 18 years in the United States military, joining when I was 17, and in those seven, in those 18 years I went from being just a high school student to being an airborne medic to being a ranger medic to being a green beret to being a green beret with PTSD and then being a former green beret medically re- uh, retired partially because of PTSD and coming into the workforce.
0: Oh, so that's a lot of different stuff.
1: Um, well, I really want to put forth the, the uh, statement of I became a Green Beret with PTSD because I think that the, there's a problem with people admitting that they have it, and I make it. I make sure I say it as much as possible to people so that there's no stigma associated with it anymore. That's that's why I say that.
0: <clears throat> so uh, <clears throat> excuse me. Mm-hmm. So a lot of different times uh, through your career, you, you say you became a. Um, a green beret with PTSD, uh, is and again, not getting into specifics, but is there a certain point where you realize something had changed? Uh, that, that I realized something changed. Yes,
1: but I am made, I was made aware later on, um, from my wife and that there was change slowly happening over time. Uh, I believe that there's experience you have where you suffer with symptoms of PTSD, but maybe not clinical PTSD, and this is all speculation on my part. This is not. This is Jeff Adamick's opinion, and uh, he had a TBI, so we, we can all go with that. Um, but I think that it came to a head when there when I couldn't come to grips with things that were outside of my control anymore. Does that make sense? Yeah, uh, absolutely. When I knew that when I knew when I knew I was going back to Afghanistan, when I knew or Iraq, when I knew there was another deployment, and I had something to look forward to, I was able to, you know cover up the symptoms that I was having that a lot of guys have all the time that weren't going away in the normal couple weeks after you get back from, from combat, you know, after 10 years, you start to realize, you start to think that this is just the way life is Right. until it's no longer possible for you to live a quality of life because it's all that's happening to you.
0: Okay. Do you think that there was a, a time from before, I mean, can you clearly delineate it where uh, there was a time maybe before the deployments um, where you were one way and then after a period of time looking back and you can see a shift?
1: Yeah, there was there was definitely a moment where coming back home and not getting back to, uh, I guess, a baseline of normality of the, the kind of calm, easy laid back guy that I used to be. It was not going back to normal as often as time went on. Uh, it, I was irritable more often. Um, never got violent. So um, never got to the point where I was being violent or anything like that with anybody But the depression of being home wanting to be back over there and not home How could you not want to be home? You know when your wife and kids are there you spend all your time over there wanting to get home to your wife and kids You get back and the second you step back foot on American soil. You're like I got to get out of here and get back overseas
0: Yeah, that's what I tell veterans uh, that I work with all the time. It's like the beginning of apocalypse now uh, when Martin Sheen says that you know when I was there I wanted to be here Uh, But when I was uh, when I was home, all I could think about was getting back in the jungle. Uh, And this is something that uh, time out of mind um, that veterans have had to deal with.
1: Right. And and with the with the misunderstanding and the misconceptions that I think PTSD, even still now with people getting to the point where they're starting to understand it with the misconceptions of that, it becomes such a scary thought to a person who is supposed to use their their brain and their their focus and their attention to detail on a day-to-day basis as a, not just an NCO, but a special operations NCO in a strategic role for the military and very, uh, you know, very, you don't have anyone to back up. It's your, everything you do is on you. You start to have doubts as to whether or not you're okay, but then you quickly don't want to face those facts. And that, that I think ends up leading to worse things. Because you don't understand the actual process that's happening causing PTSD because it's been drilled down our throat from General Patton on that this is something that only happens to cowards and weaklings. And so it's, it's just it, – and I'm guilty of – when I was a younger guy and I'm just as guilty of being one of those guys that thought PTSD was something that only happened to cowards. And it changes real quick when you start to have it and you know you're not a coward. You're not, you're not afraid. The symptoms you have, the feelings you have are not fear. But it, I think it looks like fear to other people.
0: Sure, I mean, and I think that's uh, just showing that uh, is a challenge. Now, something specific for you, Jeff, and I'm interested. Um, did you have deployments uh, while you were not in Special Forces? Did you, when you were uh, a Ranger medic, um, did you deploy or did you go to selection and then de- all your deployments were after?
1: I was in, I had been to selection, I was in phase one, which is the SUT phase or the SF version of Ranger school when 9 11 happened. So my very first combat deployment was the invasion of Iraq.
0: Okay, yeah. And, and that's something that I've seen, and, and, and I know you and I have talked about it, but uh, the majority of my uh, career was spent in uh, light infantry support, but I finished out in 10th group uh, in, uh, for the last two and a half years. Um, but uh, special forces soldiers are selected for a certain level of resilience. That's what selection does. Um, is is not weed out. It's a very difficult school. It's challenging. I get all that, but but you're selected because you have a certain level of physical, mental, emotional resilience, uh, and then you are uh, then that is developed to an even greater degree. Um, and so, what I've seen, not being a Green Beret myself, um, is that that some of the aspect of being a Green Beret is either that natural or that inclination to be trained for resilience and kind of resisting some of this stuff. Would you agree?
1: I'd absolutely agree. I, I And those who have not been through selection or, or listeners who are not even in the military, you have to understand that selection is far more than just taking someone and pushing them to the physical limits. Um, they're testing you out there with psychology tests, making sure that you're able to stay focused and do everything. Are you there?
0: I am. Yes.
1: Okay. I, I I had that. Whatever you had, I just had that that, that dropout sound. Okay. Anyway, so you go. You, they're not just testing you for physical ability. They're testing you for drive, will, intelligence, psychological stability, psychological testing to see what kind of a personality you have. You I mean you can see these things in the tests they give you and the stuff that they're doing. It's all meant to mix together. They have psychologists that work out at selection that their job is to decide whether or not somebody is fit and it's not fit because they're not met, you know, mentally capable. It's a certain type of mentality and a certain type of, you know, personality that they're looking for. And it's someone who naturally critically thinks, but naturally is intelligent. Someone who can follow orders and be a good soldier, but also wants to think outside the box. And that's the best way I could put it because I'm not a psychologist. I didn't work behind those little double glass doors making decisions on people. But I did see guys that completely had me convinced that they had every right to be there either quit on day one of team week or not get selected at all at the end for some unknown reason. And that no unknown reason had to have come from one of those psych- psychological reasons or something that, you know, was transparent to the rest of us.
0: Sure. And, and that's something that, again, and that goes into uh, resilience as an internal, um, I guess, uh, value or ability. Um, some people have it innately. It can be learned. It can be taught. Um, but but that's really on the psychological sense that's what selection is um, is that's a separator uh, and then as you go on through you know q course and, and everything else is is uh, green berets are, are are taught you know it, your resilience is expanded um, and then um, especially with the high op tempo um, even that level of resilience can be tested um, what i like to say especially with a lot of the The SF guys uh, that that I work with is uh, it takes them a long time to explode. But when they do explode, they leave a big crater and there's usually casualties.
1: Right, because they've been holding it. They've been holding in the the micro the micro explosions for so long that you can only build up so much energy. And when it comes when it finally comes out, it's like a person who's dealing with death that hasn't gotten to the, you know, the acceptance stage and they, they're holding it holding it out and then they finally have this big breakdown and it's they're sobbing and it's months or years after the person died but now they they deal with it it's the same idea that it's like a supernova that you know that's holding it in for millions of years until it's getting just to the end of its ability to hold its own power and boom it goes off i wanted to ask uh if you had heard because i, I thought about it while we were talking at the end of it any, I've heard this before, and I want to know if you've heard it and whether or not it's actually true. But there is a tendency in special operations for the guys who are in it to come from, and this is just a percentage-wise, come from bad backgrounds, like have bad childhoods or childhoods where there was, you know, un, you know, childhood nobody wanted. You know, like you were there was either abuse or they were, you know, had no parents or they were adopted. I've heard before that there's a high level of that in SF and just special ops as a whole. And I was wondering if you'd ever heard that and if, it, if you had heard it, if, if you know if it's true.
0: Well, I, I think that uh, there is a large um, – you're talking about a representative sample in that um, a lot of soldiers, a lot of service members come from that kind of background. Right, um, right. The, the military is as much a running from uh, as it is a running to. Uh, you can even consider um, that uh, young military spouses – um, uh, are really doing the same thing. Hey, I want to get out of my small town, or I want to get out of my um, my my area. And so the easiest way is for me to marry a Marine or marry a, a soldier. Um, and so you have these two young kids who may not have been from the best kind of background, who really don't understand how to uh, have a relationship. Um, and then you throw in military life on top of it. And so I, I think you know, you have a lot of people have different reasons for joining the military. Um, and then taking that next step and going into uh, Special Operations um, really is a very deliberate next step. Uh, it's very easy to, to kind of raise your hand, um, you know, uh, going airborne and things like that. Uh, but then to na- take the next step, it's a very deliberate next step to go through the selection process, to decide to go to selection, to decide to um, continue to move forward. Um, nobody would have faulted you, Jeff, if you would have stayed in, in Ranger Bat. You know, they would have said, hey, it's, you know, you would have gone, you would have done more than most kind of thing, um, and yet you decided to take that next step. And, and so I don't know if there's anything inherently psychological in which, um, you know, those trying to, to outpace the past or, or, or prove uh, anything like that. Um, I've not heard anything specifically with Special Forces, but it wouldn't be surprised. I Wouldn't be surprised if that were the case Yeah, and just
1: to be clear, it's no indication on my childhood it was just something I heard and I was wondering because I had a theory that You're either somebody who is naturally just driven to be great or You're somebody that's trying to prove something to, to, to the universe or or some unknown thing to be guys like us who are constantly looking for some other challenge and are never satisfied With what we get, you know, and that's that's a that's a good thing. I I I don't think that's a character flaw. I think having a drive to excel all the time is great, as long as it's tempered with an appreciation of humanity and common sense, and not being a megalomaniac. Because if you if you put both of those together, then you come up with guys like Hitler or, or Stalin, and and that that's dangerous. But when you temper it with a person who's truly a good person, who just has a drive to excel for their own benefit or for the benefit of something bigger than themselves. That is where I think most of the world's the world's special forces come from. And even the world's militaries that are volunteer, every single person that joins the, the army joins because they want to be there or because they think they don't have another another choice. But when you get in, the next time you enlist, if you ever stay in longer than your first term, you're doing that because you want to be there, not because you feel like you have to. So there are guys who join because they have to and then they stay. And I think those guys have developed into that Mentality through the military's process of teaching you how to be a an adult a you know a productive adult But I think that so I don't think anyone there's a lot of people that get in you know And they're like oh this person just got in because he didn't want to he wanted to get away from his life After four years if he wasn't happy with his life He's not gonna be happy with the army because the army is not easy It's it's a challenge to be in so they'll run back out again So I, I never I always try to make sure that anyone knows that I have as much respect for a cook in first ID who's barely making rank as I do for a guy in Delta Force.
0: Well, and and I think something that you said um, is is very critical. It's at the point of which someone uh, is comfortable with what they're doing. I mean, and this is something that you and I haven't talked about, but uh, uh, there were certain paths in my career um, that I I very much could have made a a different decision. Uh, This is not soft envy, uh, although that exists. But when I was in the 82nd, uh, I was a squad leader, my team leader, uh, Dale he and I um, he had uh, that was when the star was still in the Q course um, and so he passed selection uh, but uh, had a little bit of challenge um, in the star and so he went back to the line for a little bit until his Q came back again and uh, Dale and I um, again squad leader team leader um, you know he was saying hey why don't you why don't you try out for selection why don't you do this and and I was very content with what I was doing as far as uh, being a leader and a teacher and a non-commissioned officer, um, I was. It, it wasn't that I didn't want to excel. It was that was a different path um, than uh, that. Ultimately, I decided. You know, I considered it, um, and and then decided. You know what? No, I'm I'm okay with where I'm at, um, and uh, this career field, so to speak, needs leaders uh, and stuff too. So I think that's something that you hit on was. it's something that either I I, I want to excel or maybe I'm not comfortable where I'm at. Again, you, you knew guys in, uh, you know, as Rangers, they were perfectly happy, um, you know, being in Ranger bat that, that had, you know, maybe there was a thought about going to selection, but uh, they preferred to be a Ranger kind of thing.
1: I, I know guys I was in Ranger bat with that never left and are one of the, I have more respect for than some, some people, that are my heroes. You know what I mean? Like they, yeah. they, they stayed there and they did great, wonderful things. And I have no guys that stayed in the 82nd that never left there, that, that fall into the same category. And that's why I really believe it. And they go out of their way in, 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 in selection when you're letting people go for non, you know, non quitting or for any reason, they tell them that this isn't, a, this isn't a hit on your personality and your ability to do anything. What we do is very, very isolated to a small portion of this of the world mentally and physically what you can do and so it's not for everyone and i agree with you i think that had you gone knowing yourself that you're all like, oh, do it this is a good idea if that would have you would have been t- day two of team week you would have been like screw this you know i mean that doesn't make that doesn't make you, no, doesn't make yeah, you and, weak it and, just, and it it, just you know, means that you, you have to almost can't i can't go back
0: right to what i, mean, I was and, doing and that goes and there are a lot of people i would imagine that in in, in I believe uh, you know that I would have said you know I would have stuck through it or whatever but yeah I knew guys that were selected that that uh, or that went through selection that weren't selected uh, I knew a guy yeah. that went through like three times and he was finally selected on the third time okay brother so do I
1: I know a guy that I'm in group with that I was in age second with who had that three time selection and that, that to me is that's that's a guy who you know wants to be there
0: yeah no and and, and he was he was but uh, but but then you you th- you know and, and as we're talking about this process and and, uh, you know, uh, the, the way um, in which um, special operations forces are, are selected and things like that. And then you get it drilled into your head, you know, the elite of the elite of the elite. And then you have the, the fact that you, you come to the point where, to the breaking point, essentially, and almost literally. Um, do you think that leads to or contributes to the stigma not just in the military, but specifically within the soft community against admitting um, weakness, if that's what you want to call it, or psychological concerns. It absolutely does. I
1: mean, I could say that without as a person who went through it. I mean, we, we also not only do we get drilled in that we're elite, we're also well aware that we're prof- that the army pays us a professional bonus for being professional military. You know the pro the pro pays that come in there is for you know only drill sergeants, recruiters, and SF guys get that pay, and it's considered a profession, a one hundred percent profession. So you get that, and then what comes with that is this constant reminder that you are an example to everyone else of what it is to be a professional soldier, and on top of that, the best you know the top of the professional soldiers by being you know special operations. Um, Kennedy, you know John Kennedy, when he awarded the Green Beret, made comment of, you know, the Green Beret is a symbol of excellence that should be striven to, and and you know and made everyone should look to that as the example of how to be. So when you have that, you know, we everyone who's got kids understands that when you tell your kid not to do something that you've done, it's not because you're being a hypocrite. It's because you're setting an example to them of what's right and wrong. Regardless of what I've done wrong, you're supposed to be better than me. So mm-hmm. do that. Now you apply that. To an to, to to having signs and symptoms of PTSD and resiliency and and instilling confidence in your your brothers left and right of you and the people below you that you're okay to get the job done when you want to do it and it starts to become a problem, not an asset. as at some point, you know the things that make us who we are that are great, eventually lead to what we're talking about with guys really you know holding it in too long and and then it you know becomes a massive issue.
0: Right. And that's something that uh, that even, again, as I witnessed in the last uh, two and a half years that I spent with 10th Group, um, is that it was almost like Russian nesting dolls. You know, it's it was a uh, um, way within our compound, within our ring of hills, um, we really didn't give a crap about what was going on on main post on Carson. It was a totally different world. Um, right. You know, whereas uh, even a, on a military basis, we're not really concerned about what's going off post because, you know, our backs are to the fence. Here at Carson, our, our Carson, uh, our backs were to the hills, uh, and, and even as far down as within the battalions, within the team rooms, everybody was focused inwards, and and not in a, a negative way of, of trying to um, trying to cover up, um, but but just trying to maintain a certain level of uh, of image, um, if not the the expected level of professionalism.
1: Right. Well, I mean, let's let's be honest. The 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 regular military. <laughs> You know, and we've all seen them. The the leaders in the regular military do they have an issue with special operations. They don't like us. And that's nothing. I understand why. But we have to isolate ourselves, A, because we have a job that requires isolation for security reasons. And B, because we don't have time to spend all day explaining to some post-star major why we've got guys out wearing sneakers and hats in the woods while we're doing training, especially when the, we have, you know, we don't have time to stop training to, to, to explain to you, mind your own business, we've got a job to do that's national command authority and we have are allowed to do this and we're just you know we, it just it's distracting from training and from what we need to be doing. So it, we have to create a separation only because it is two different jobs. I mean I, I would I would go as far to say and I'm sure you agree that the 80 second is like a borderline between special ops and the regular Army. but once you're in special ops, it's like a different military altogether. A complete different mindset, a complete different way of doing things, and not one is better than the other. They each serve their role, but the problem is that one is the over overarching mother of the whole thing, and you've got this little group inside of them that are getting all the funding and getting all the cool jobs and getting all this stuff. Oh, and by the way, allowed to pretty much do what they want and not follow regular standards in their opinion because they don't have an understanding of why the standards are changed. But that that creates problems that that we've got to deal with as guys in group that and you know it being being working with them that you see that they, they are always being sharp shot by the regular military right so well, we've got this fear of fear of them coming down on us do you think about that now you don't want people to know you've got an issue because you don't want the regular army to have any reason to think that you should be second you know second guest or taken out of your job because because you've always been told by regular star army star majors that you're a turd because you went somewhere where you could put your hands in your pockets
0: Well, and I think that, and obviously, yes, there are those reasons for uh, tactical separation, even strategic level separation. Uh, But I can see where some individuals would then take that and extrapolate that into mean, well, I just, you know, psychologically separated, you know, the the fact that I don't need to tell you why I'm here right now also gives me the right of saying, I don't need to tell you what I'm thinking. I, I don't need to tell you. And so it's taking that to um, to the psychological place as much as the tactical and strategic place.
1: Right, right. Yeah, there, I mean, and that's so you start hearing. And I'm, if you're a listener right now, and you're wondering why we keep just adding more and more things, it, it you have to put it all together. It's a sum of a whole. All these things together are are things that affect where this is going. As a soft as a soft soldier with PTSD, forget the stuff that's going to be you know almost directly responsible for it. But all these secondary factors that that lead you down a road of why am I not willing to ask for help? Because I've got too much stuff I'm responsible for to stop and maybe I'll lose my job or maybe I won't be able to do this anymore. And I love doing this. This is my life. This is everything about me. So, I mean, there's, there's all kind, That's This is all just stuff that's building up to where, the, where it comes from that guys don't want to ask for help when they know they've got a problem.
0: So then you got to a point um, in your career in which the, uh, the internal pressure um, of the uh, what you were experiencing, PTSD or even sub-PTSD, some of the symptoms of PTSD were getting in the way, um, and then you were medically retired. Um, tell me a little bit about that process, receiving, um, of course in the military, in the army, they call it behavioral health, but talking to mental health professionals while you're on active duty, the kind of decision to make that, uh, that transition, um, and then to be medically retired.
1: Okay. So I get in 2009, um, in my last combat deployment, I got medically evacuated after an ambush and I had gotten a back injury, a TBI and was, you know, TBI at the time, was go right back home to the states. Now I had enough of a TBI that I would have been sent home anyway. I mean, I couldn't be a speaker or or be in the light because of the the concussion I had and I immediately started forgetting things, like almost it was a you know immediate notice of something's wrong, so I get sent home. Now once I get sent home, I get put into into the into the system to go through therapy and get everything done. And some of the therapists are saying, "Would you like to, you know, to go see mental health because you, you've had six deployments?" You know, you are, you're doing a lot of high risk things. You, you've been doing this a long time. You never had a break. Do you want to get, and I'm like, no. And I wasn't picking up that they were seeing things that I wasn't. And finally I started to get like depression because I kind of started to feel like I knew I was never going to get back. My back was just too far gone. The the TBI was really a struggle to deal with, which I'm sure, would you know, contributed to depression. But I didn't know where the depression was coming from. It would come on and off like nobody's business. And I'm talking about you get home from somewhere and you go to the bathroom because you don't want to do it in front of anyone and you sob like -hmm. your wife just died for an hour. And it's like turns on, turns off. You walk out like nothing's wrong and that happens every day Mm -hmm. and there's no explanation for it. There's no trigger. There's no nothing. Then there's the inability to sleep, waking up with, you know, the cold sweats or because you had a bad dream. Now me, unfortunately, I don't remember my dreams. So I can't tell you what I was dreaming about. I just know it wasn't pleasant. And then I had a friend of mine die and it was done with. It became, it it went from inconvenient to unhandleable by me. I could not deal with it. I mean, it did nothing Went, I didn't go off the rails and go, you know, off the farm crazy, but I went so far gone down depression and Starting to you know hear you know think I'm hearing stuff in the middle of the night waking up and walking just I mean just stuff that's what your mind starts to actually to betray you because you think something's happening that absolutely is not happening and you're convinced of it because you don't know you don't know how to identify that it's just your your mind playing tricks on you kind of thing because you've never had it before and now you have it but you you're you're you know that you have good situation awareness and your your senses are acute because you, you've been trained for years to do it and you're hearing something or you get so it wakes you up and you know there's someone in the house because you heard it and woke you up there's nothing there nothing there so you don't realize where that's coming from it all of a sudden starts and you're so convinced of it that you don't know to say oh, i'm just imagining it and just go back to sleep you start telling your wife hey there's someone in the house So that's about like the third time that happened she's like you need to go get help and for me now i am not the norm that was all it took for me right because i've been married for 20 years to the same woman i got married to as a private and nothing ever came before her. So when she said that, it was said with a tone of, you need to do this. Like I, you know, it's gonna get bad. And I'm the, you know, she's gotta protect the kids if I got way out of hand. You know, like I said, no violence, but I was just, it was scary, I'm sure for her. It was scary for me, I know it was scary for her. She told me, it was it was a, it, the message was received, went immediately the next day, and I was already starting to get chaptered for my back in the TBI. Immediately went down there and asked to see a, to see a therapist.
0: And and so I think uh, in in getting into that in a little bit, but you bring up a great point that a lot of veterans, um, although there's an internal awareness, it usually takes something external from them to help them uh, take the next step. Uh, I say that uh, it's usually uh, people bringing something to your attention that you're already aware of. Um, in a good sense it might be a family member like your, your spouse or, or my wife or, or a, a, you know your dad saying, hey son, we really need to talk, a brother something like that. In a more extreme sense it's going to be somebody like the cops or, or, or the, the courts or something like that saying there's something there. Um, but, but I see this often um, that, uh, that veterans uh, will um, service members, um, they'll wait until somebody tells them what they already know. Um, and then it almost is, wait a minute, now it's it's obvious. I don't I, I can't mask it anymore. Exactly, exactly. And I think it has to come from someone you
1: totally trust, someone that you know would never tell you something other than the truth. Uh, and that and that's part of my thing, not to get offhand, but it's on us sometimes to help our brothers and sisters by being honest with them and not help them hide something that's wrong. Because they need to hear it from someone they trust. Because I'm telling you, they're not going to admit that they have an issue until someone else lets them know that what they think may not be real is real, really happening. You really have PTSD. This isn't just like normal stuff. It is it is an issue. It's not going to go away. Matter of fact, it it doesn't go away ever. You learn to cope and deal with it, but you don't get rid of it. Because it's a condition that you have earned over years of of doing what you have to do. And, and so... It got to come from someone that's trustworthy, someone that you're going to believe and someone that you really know cares about you because there's so many misconceptions about what going to therapy and getting help is going to do to you that you have to realize that if someone else is amid, under misconceptions of what everything's going on is saying you need this because I'm concerned, they're doing it because they want to save your life. So you ha- your, your life is in danger. PTSD is a medical emergency if it's not treated. I mean, and people have to get that through their head. It's not something that's going to go away. and It's never going to get better. And the longer it goes on, the longer you get disassociated from reality, and you'll never feel right. And what kind of a life is that? Yeah, if you, It's just you're either going to be angry or depressed. They're really yeah. the only two things that you got got left at that point.
0: And that's something that you bring up in, in, uh, in trust is an integral part of working with the mental health professional. It absolutely is. Um, and, and sometimes at the moment when you need that trust the most, uh, it is least there. And so, uh, would you say even the, the trust of, um, hearing from someone, um, that that's necessary, that you should take that step, uh, that's critical. So you, you went down, you find, you had already started the, uh, the medical process, um, and, uh, for physical, um, concerns, uh, then you said you, you started working with somebody with behavioral health. While you were still on active duty, how was that experience for you?
1: All right. So, and now here, here's where it's going to lead into my recovery journey, or not recovery, but my handling of it. I'm getting ready to go go down to Madigan, or not Madigan, to Womack on Fort Bragg, and everyone that's ever been on Fort Bragg knows the sixth floor. The sixth floor is where behavioral health is in Womack. I know I'm going to the sixth floor to talk to this person, so I do not go in uniform.
0: Mm -hmm.
1: Why? Because I am ashamed of the fact that I'd be having my tab on, my green beret on, walking into the sixth floor. So i go up there with civilian clothes on. Now, yes, I could argue all day and lie to you and say I went in civilian clothes because I like to wear civilian clothes and not uniform. And it wouldn't be a lie. But for this, it would be a lie. I've purposely changed at at work into civilian clothes to go to to see them. So point. That that's, comes, that's, comes very important later on. I get up there. And I go through the you know, process and they, they assign me somebody and they, they know because they're, they're very good at this. They see it all the time. They're like, we're going to have you go to one of the regular cl- clinics and there'll be a person there. You can, you'll be meeting with daily because they can already see I'm uncomfortable being on the sixth floor mm-hmm. and that's fine. I go down there and I, I walk in to that therapy session with my very first therapist and is a very, very nice lady. She's older. She's had, you know, obviously was brought in. Um, through from the from the government to be, to work specifically this job and everything she immediately starts going into the standardized well let's talk about what's where you've been what you've done you know where are you from your parents and and I'm, and I stop her right there I'm like listen like you have to understand that I had baggage that existed before I had PTSD that I don't want you to take from me. I need that baggage to be the person I am. I just need you to get me back to the person I was when I became a Green Beret. I just, I don't need anything else taken away. So don't ask me about my childhood. And it, I was confrontational with her and didn't know why. It was the first person that I was like belligerent with about this thing. You know, everyone else, I was kind of keeping it quiet. Even my wife, I was, uh, you know, she told me something, I was just like, all right, I'll do it. I understand. I got to her and it was like, listen, don't fix me past where, where I'm still the guy that I was and I got, you know, the, the person everyone likes. I need that guy. I don't want to be some random frigging tree-hugging, loving, feely, trying kind to of creepy thing. I, I want to be that guy. So, and she's, so, like, she's like, I don't know that guy. And I'm like, exactly. And that was the last time I saw her. I went back and said, I need, new, I need a new therapist.
0: So what you're saying is even though uh, the brakes were worn and the rotors were, were grooved, you just wanted her to fix the engine, leave all the other stuff that was broken before, Um, Right. The way it was broken before, because you knew how to operate the vehicle with those broken pieces.
1: Yes. And I operated it. I mean, to me, in my head, I'm thinking to myself, I was able to get my wife to marry me. You know, I I had kids that looked up to me and and loved me. I I had a great job where I was, you know, if not, you know, well known and well liked, at least I was there not being a douchebag to everybody. I wanted to be that guy again. I didn't want anything fixed past that because I was afraid of what it would do to the dynamic of my life as I knew it in its best state. You, you know, at the per- time of my life. It, this is the old thing. I want to be that guy again. Not realizing at the time you're never going to be that guy again. Mm-hmm. But I put it on her because she said, oh, I don't know who that guy is. And I, then I was kind of like, well, how the hell are you going to get me back to that guy if you don't even understand what that guy is? and i just could i just couldn't sit in the room with her anymore because i just don't think that i i didn't feel like she understood what i was saying because she normally is dealing with guys who are massively acute have like you said done something where they've been in, they've gotten themselves in trouble or they're being violent or overly violent or just can't handle the experiences of of something that happened i didn't have a moment that i got ptsd my ptsd is my ptsd wasn't an event my ptsd was a slow drive yeah to a final destination that was, you know, it was over time.
0: It small things it built up. It wasn't a dive into the pool; you gradually slipped into the pool.
1: Yes, and so I personally believe that there is a difference in the way that manifests PTSD for people. Um, it's a common—you see this guy one day, this happens, then something happens, and next day he's a totally different guy. You can identify it, and normally it's so traumatic that they're off—they're off, they're off kilter—and at that moment of explosion, then. But with us I was handling things and masking things for so long that when I finally had the one thing I couldn't handle everything just overflowed but it didn't overflow to the explosion point it just was like filling a glass up with a slow trickle of water and now it's just flowing over the top and it's covering the whole glass right. and everything's but but it's not spilling all over the place it's just it's just building up everywhere around you
0: so so then um, you you chose not to go back to uh, that, uh, that therapist. Um, but it didn't turn you off from seeking therapy.
1: It also didn't help because it made me immediately guilty for making her the, the brunt of my, you know, I'm trying to put the blame of what was going on with me on something. Mm -hmm. Um, didn't want to take responsibility for it myself because I didn't want to, again, didn't want to feel like a coward or feel like I was there was something wrong with me so I didn't want to take responsibility for it. I wouldn't put it on the army, I wouldn't put it on the Green Berets because they that I love them and I wouldn't put it on my family because that's not fair to them. They got to put up enough with everything. Someone's got to get it. If I'm not going to put it on me and be self-destructive, which is some people do, I just put it on her. But I also knew that that was that was wrong and because I was having guilt issues and depression, it made it worse. So my first Talk with talk with him wasn't me opening up and making it worse. It was me stepping into the blame, blame somebody else, project my feelings somewhere else, and then immediately like, damn, why did I do that to that poor woman? So I couldn't face her again because of that. Also, I didn't think she was ever going to be able to help, and so I went back and I said, look, I got to see somebody else.
0: Well, and see, and that's a an interesting aspect of uh, of what we do as mental health professionals. A lot of it is to um, be able to absorb a lot of that. You know, it, it puts me in mind. Um, of um, the difference between a casualty notification officer and a casualty assistance officer. Um, you know, I don't know if you went through that uh, kind of thing while you were in, uh, but I did as far as the training. Uh, the casualty notification officer is the first one on the scene and notifies uh, the family member of the loss. In um, yeah, my, my that, opinion, the worst job in the military. Right. But it's but that individual is the, the voice of the Army and the Secretary of Defense and things like that. And but that person gets the entire brunt of that individual grief that cannot be the same person um, that walks that family member through all the other. so the casualty assistance officer is someone totally different. Um, it, it's a difference between a thousand pounds of grief in a, a, a small area versus a, a, a one pound of grief over a large spread over area. And it's two different things. Um, and, and so and, and while you accurately recognize that's what I did with that particular therapist, um, that's what's good with, with those of us, I, those, those individuals that are familiar working with veterans, that we kind of expect that, um, that there is going to be this, um, you know, walking in and, and, and unloading and, you know, um, and just kind of uh, being the target. And, and mental health professionals are trained uh, to deal with that kind of stuff. But I think it was really good that you were able to recognize that. So you went back and and you asked for somebody else, right?
1: And so the next time they did not give me the opportunity to go to one of the satellite uh, clinics. They just said, "Well, we'll have you meet here with Major So and So, whoever this guy was, who was a in the he was a doctor. He was part of the medical corps. He was a psych, psychologist, psychiatrist. Let me refer. He's a, he she, she was a psychologist. He was a psychiatrist. He talked to me, and he was. Everything that SF guys don't like about the army
0: <laughs>
1: wouldn't talk to me until I came in uniform when he talked to me he said he would there was things I would go at, start to open up to him about and he would stop me and warn me that I needed to make sure I never told I didn't tell him anything that was illegal which is I was like what and then he would just give me medicine and say I'll see you in a month now I don't know if anyone out there has ever taken some of these mental health medicines but I personally believe they're overused and they're dangerous Um, and a good example is giving somebody something that just snows them and gives them you know amplifies some of the symptoms that they're having worse never in my life have I ever thought about suicide until an hour after day three of taking this certain medicine it it dawned on like out of nowhere i mean the thought just came to me and it passed as quick as it came but i never took that medicine ever again because i had already read that that medicine had been contributing to people having these breaks where they were just going off and you know murder suiciding people so i being a former medic i knew that if you identify a symptom that's a you know a no go you immediately stop and reassess i went right back to him and he said don't be don't be so dramatic and when he said that to me i said i want to i want to go off post I was like I'm like and I and I almost kind of blew up at him. I was like, "Sir, you have no idea because you haven't asked me one question about what I be, what I do or where where I've been. You just keep telling me that I need to make sure I follow the rules and make sure I don't, you know, I I self-identify that I'm going to be violent. He didn't talk about anything that was bothering me. Only what he tried to do was try to find out how to prevent me from having the symptoms and it was all based on make sure you don't get yourself in trouble. And I was just like I, I had it with him. I mean, I went from feeling bad about being at her to wishing I had gotten his ass more. And there, thats I won't say what his name was, but I mean, this guy turned almost completely ruined it. I almost walked out and never went back. And who knows what would have happened. But when I walked out, there was a doctor in the, in the hallway bringing in a, a guy for a non-self-referral. And that's when you get brought there from the unit and made to go see mental health. And I, he used to be an SF. He used to work with the SF guys. He sees me, and he sees I'm frustrated, and he asks me what's going on, and he immediately goes to a computer and puts in a referral for me to go off post, and he puts in a certain guy's name. He's like, there's a guy I know, and that guy changed everything about my life at that point.
0: So, and, and I think this is uh, sometimes indicative of what uh, veterans think is going to happen, um, uh, either at the VA or, or active duty service members. They They... Um, the assumption is they're going to get that stereotypical major that you're talking about, the psychiatrist that doesn't want to know anything and only wants to manage symptoms. Um, I, as a master's level mental health professional, don't, uh, I, I don't prescribe. We don't have prescription ability, uh, but my, um, uh, uh, the owner of our clinic here, uh, he's a former chief of behavioral health, um, and he and I have talked about uh, medications. They're good as far as they go in that they provide a calm, stable place for someone to actually learn the skills to be able to manage things on their own. Uh, Dr. Weber, um, who who I hope to have on an upcoming episode, uh, will tell you that he tends to take uh, soldiers and veterans off of medications rather than putting them on more medications um, because that's that's what's going to be best in the long term. But your experience with the second therapist, number one, your experience with the first therapist, lay down on the couch, tell me about your mother, let's talk about your childhood, you know, and the whole Sigmund Freud thing. Let's right. try to go deeper than than maybe the individual's ready to go deep. That's a stereotype that people have about therapists. Uh, and then uh, the second stereotype or the sec- your second experience is another stereotype that people have that would keep them from actually trying for that third time. So tell me a little bit about your third time um, with, uh, with this one that you say he, he changed everything for you.
1: Right. Um, there's something I forgot to mention um, that I just want put to put out there. So between the first and second therapist, I started having these things where I'd wake up in the middle of the night with my heart pounding and I felt like I was going to die. And that never happened before. Even when I was having the depression symptoms, it didn't happen. And I didn't know what was happening at all I mean it was it was there was fear there because I didn't know it was my it was a body reaction I was having mm-hmm. and as you I know you're already in your head identifying that it was an anxiety attack mm-hmm. and it was and so I had these anxiety attacks that start and just get progressively worse as I'm going through this whole process even though I already know that I am getting medically retired it's it's it, my I'm not fighting to try to get back on a team and get back to the fight I have already consoled myself, in a way, to the process, even if I haven't consoled myself to the idea. But the process is going to happen, There's, and I've made the decision to take it instead of taking co which is continuation on active duty to my retirement date, right. because I couldn't sit there and not go and see guys go and, when I needed to move on with my life. And I, was, I was aware of it, so I took it. But it was not that that was causing these anxiety attacks, which I still had not even realized were anxiety because I didn't even get to the point where I could talk about those because the doctor never asked about them. Right. So I'm having these. I go off post. I walk in to a strip mall off of Bragg Boulevard. And around the back, there's like a house.
0: I would say, Was it next to a tattoo parlor, probably?
1: Well, yeah, it's Bragg Boulevard. Everything's next to a tattoo parlor and a strip bar. And
0: a dry cleaner.
1: So, so I, get my, I can get my uniform pressed, get a lap dance, get a new tattoo, and get my mind right. All in this in one strip mall. It seemed like heaven on earth to me.
0: And, and see, and so, that's great because that that I mean, because I could do all that stuff in the late '90s, except for talk to a therapist. So at least I'm glad they added uh, that that last one on top of there. So that's
1: well. Great. I mean, technically, at that time you could have you were getting most of your therapy by getting the strip the strippers to talk yeah, to you. Right. So I mean, but you know they were they were untrained behavioral health people, so um, <laughs> they weren't effective, but they were there. So I walk into this guy's office, and immediately when I walk in. He comes out and he's a older gentleman wearing wearing a sweater and you know greets me with a smile. Says that he's really happy to see me. Says that he's really you know happy. There's a green beret there, and well, and I'm like I'm he's like overly happy that I'm there. I'm like I don't get what's going on with this guy. I walk into his office to sit down, and behind him on the wall is a green beret in a shadow case, a a Yarborough knife. In a in a display case, and then a photograph of him and Dick Meadows in Vietnam in 1969, and I'm like, and guys, Dick Meadows is, is like the man. He's one of the first Green Berets. He's, 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 there's a statue of him right outside. He, he's the guy. Yeah.
0: He's so not I'm like, Photoshopped or anything. It's like
1: no, this is this is his this is his commander of his SF team that he was an SF guy on. So he gets out of the military after being being a Green Beret. <laughs> He comes and I can't I can't remember his name, but I'm sure that and I'm sure he doesn't have any this isn't something that's that's a mystery, but he ended up like being one of the people that ran QVC. You know, he had his his, his psychology degree and he was a you know, licensed psychologist, but he was a he was the one of the corporate guys who ran QVC. And then nine eleven happened. He quit and came back to Fort Bragg to set up shop because he knew. He knew what was gonna happen. Right. So and that, this is something I learned later on, you know, you know how he, he came back for a reason because he knew that he needed to do this because he already, he knew he was a green beret in the, during Vietnam, he knew what our mindset was like. He knew how this was going to, he knew also was able, he was one of the guys that was like me, was smart enough to realize things before they were bad and able to learn. And, and now he's helping people. So he sits there in three sessions, three hour long sessions, nothing about my experiences, nothing about going to war. Nothing about my PTSD or what I'm feeling. All it was was him telling me stories and me telling him stories about some of the heroes of SF and why SF is important and why we loved it and everything else like that. And finally at the third session at the end, I'm like, "Um, Doc, what are we doing? I'm like, we uh, haven't spoken a bit about PTSD. And he goes, you have anxiety attacks, don't you? And I'm like, yes. He goes, how many were you having before you started talking to me? And I realized at that moment that the anxiety attacks – had completely almost gone away. They were still happening, but they weren't happening every day. Mm-hmm. And it was because he was building a level of trust, not in him and me, but just me trusting what's going on. I didn't go in there worrying about that I was going to have to talk about things I didn't want to talk about. I started worrying about that we weren't going to ever get to the things that I, that I needed to talk about because he wasn't talking about them. And he also identified with me directly by letting me know all these stories about how he was just – he was the same guy as the rest of us. And now he's here. He understands what we're saying when we say the the things we're saying. Immediately once I realized that he was there because he understood who I wanted to get back to being, that was it. I had my moment. From that point forward, I was able to shed so much baggage with this guy because then we started talking about things that within six months, he told me that I had everything I needed to not need care every week and every month and now now I only I don't even go back I haven't been back to see a a person in years uh because I know how to re- how to manage and how to take care of the the different symptoms that I have uh and he's also the one that explained to me what was really going on um and if you don't mind I'd like to, you you we had that blog I put out about the cortisol thing once that that was a realization to me that that I think was I was almost angry at the military for not Making sure everyone understood this, what is really actually physiologically happening during PTSD, and what it really is, Absolutely. and how the military has a it's an enabler for what's happening with some of the things that it does.
0: And, and you reference your blog. I'm I'm actually uh, I'm gonna uh, put a link to the blog in the show notes as much because it is um, a, a part of your story. Uh, but there is, as you reference, in it it is going to be. Um, and not more complicated than anybody can understand, but there is a uh, physiological, a physical um, impact of repeated uh, exposure to trauma. Um, another guest that I'm going to have coming on, her name is uh, uh, Dr. Blair Cano. She is a, a Navy veteran, but she's also a uh, psychologist and neurologist um, that can speak on the physical changes to the brain, the amygdala, the hippocampus. Uh, the limbic system, um, how the uh um the, the prefrontal lobe does not um regulate the emotional centers of the brain because we don't want that to happen. We don't want to have the prefrontal lobe kick in right before we go out the door of the airplane to say this might not be something that's good for me. We we want the prefrontal lobe to be disconnected. Um
1: right. and so, funny you mention her name because I reference her specifically in that in that article.
0: Oh well good. I'll I'll let her know that uh uh, that, uh, actually I, I, talked to her a little earlier today. So, um,
1: I, I read her study. It was pretty good.
0: Yeah. So, and, and so there, there is a lot of that. And I, I really appreciate the, um, really you went through uh, sort of the three different, uh, uh, types of, of, I guess, mental health professionals, but well, let me ask you this, Jeff, and, and, and I don't want to run this too long, um, as far as this episode and, Um, and as long as Eddie and Bennett will, will allow us to ride on their train, we'll definitely have opportunity to keep going. But do you personally believe that, um, a veteran can only see a mental health professional who is a veteran?
1: No, 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 no. What see, we're all, every single individual is different. Um, the point of my story and that, thank you for bringing it up because there is a point. The point is, is if you go to a therapist and they're just not what you need, you don't. It doesn't mean therapy is wrong. It just means that that person is not. You have to have trust. You have to have some kind of a rapport with them. You've got to believe that they understand you, or believe that they're trying to. And if you have issue, and there's a, there's a, there's a need to, to move on, p- please don't, keep moving on until you find the right one. Because you will, you will find the right one. Apply your your ability to not quit. Apply the the thing that keeps you kept you from telling anyone you had PTSD. Apply that to your to not quitting the process because the, it's not going to get better on its own, and you will find someone that that gets you gets you that that feeling that you can trust them, and that they're not judging you. I mean, and there's all kinds of things that go into it, as you know. It's, there's you know trust, the feeling of non judgment, the feeling of safe, and all that, all those therapeutic things that we don't want to hear about as green berets. We just want to hear just fix me, but we still need those. We're still human beings. We still have a way that our that that the brain works in a way that. We, we transmit and process feelings that is similar because we're all the same species. So you need to keep pro, You need to keep going. You need to drive on until you find the, the person that's going to help you or the person that you're going to be able to let help you, really.
0: And, and I think that's uh, instructive even for uh, the audience of mental health professionals. You know, the, the hope is that I'll have uh, some colleagues that are interested in working with veterans that will be listening to this. Um, to understand that, uh, that, yeah, not every um, veteran is going to work uh, closely. We all know that, I, I think, as mental health professionals, that, uh, that that it has to be the therapeutic alliance, the bond between the therapist and the client uh, is going to be the strongest thing, and that's a two-way street. Now, this, is, uh, this has been great, Jeff. I really appreciate the, uh, the time. Um, to, uh, to, to kind of share your story. And, and it does uh, take some courage. I know that uh, um, the, the courage lies in, um, uh, the, the reason for the courage is to want to help veterans um, uh, know more and, and kind of get over this. Uh, but, uh, but it is still um, courageous enough to come out and say, yeah, you know, these are the issues, this is what I experienced and, and I've come out the other side. So uh, to wrap up, um, I'd like to give you the opportunity to uh, – if anybody wants to find out more about what you're doing or, or any projects that you have, um, please uh, let them know uh, Twitter, Facebook, all that kind of stuff.
1: Uh, yeah, uh, you can go on to, on to Facebook and just search for Jeff Adamick, J-E-F-F-A-D-A-M-E-C, and find my page on Facebook. If you want to go on to Twitter – Uh, Let me see if I make sure I say it absolutely correctly so I don't mess it up. My Twitter page for you to go to is – it's again Jeff Adamick. It is uh, at capital J-E-F-F capital A-D-A-M-E-C, and you will see my face smiling with change your POV written underneath it. Go ahead and get on there and follow me. And I open up to the audience, anyone that has any questions or concerns or even – thinks that they may or may not need to be mentored or guided to know what the right answer is i'm, I'm here for you guys uh reach out to me because if, if, if guys like me can come to grips to get help that they need you can do it too
0: all right hey i appreciate it thank you for coming on the headspace and timing glad to hear that your headspace and timing has finally been set pretty well and uh and audience we will hear more next time thank you